Welcome to Chicago Tabernacle, a place of becoming. Wherever you find yourself, we pray that you would be encouraged today by God's Word. Well, hey, good morning. A special place. What an honor to be here. I just really love this place. really do. And um, please hug your pastors when they come back. I wish I could see them, so just form a line Chicago style on the street, run them through the gauntlet, okay? Just smear them with love for me. Congratulations on 20 years. Whether you've been here 20 years, you've been here about 20 minutes. I love the language, a place of becoming. I love it in the kingdom of God. The only expectation he places on us is response. It's not after performance. He just wants to, us to respond. To respond to his love, respond to his word, respond to his wooing and his prompting. So... Um, here's, here's the deal. I'm, I get really nervous every time I stand up and talk in front of people. So I'm an introvert. So in about 60 seconds, I'll be okay. So I, I learned years ago never to try to open up sermons, you know, with fun, try to try to be funny. So, so, um, this, this will probably be different. So what I'll do is I'll just, we're just going to look at the Bible and go deep. And I'm just going to be myself because God doesn't anoint who we pretend to be. And so what's going to happen, though, is we're going to look at a book that um, God is responsible for. And the most amazing communicator in the universe is here. His name is the Spirit of God. And so he, according to Jesus of Nazareth, he will guide you into all truth, John 16. So he will speak to you. So you're about to have two conversations. You're about to listen to me, but really you're going to listen to God. And so God will just whisper to you. And uh, your response to that voice will have a profound impact on your life. So that's what we're going to do today. I want to talk to you about surrender. Just uh, the privilege we have of surrendering to Jesus. Total surrender. So there's a difference between surrender and obedience. I thought of it this way the other day. Um, obedience is when we say yes to Jesus after he speaks. So when we, when we read this book and, and we're given instructions, obedience is when we say yes to what has already been communicated. Or obviously, you know, God can communicate in a variety of ways. When we are in prayer, one of the reasons I love Chicago Tab is this is a place of prayer. So God comes. That means he recognizes your voice. God responds to friends very different than he does strangers. So he recognizes your voice. And so when he communicates to us and we respond to him, um, sometimes he gives us instructions. And obedience is saying yes after God speaks. But I would propose, and the way I would define surrender, is saying yes before he speaks. We say yes before we know what the question is. We say yes before we know what the sovereign one and the mighty one requires of us. And so total surrender to Jesus is our lifelong privilege. And so I'm learning that there's just, it's possible to live in the constant awareness of the nearness of God. It is, it is possible. And all throughout scripture we see we're given invitations, right? So sometimes when we experience things we, we don't understand, um, you know, Proverbs 25 verse 2, I think it is. It says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. So sometimes when we experience a situation that doesn't line up with what we know to be true about God, it's actually an invitation to draw near to God, and God rewards that. Um, Jeremiah 33, verse 3, prayer. Prayer is one of the ways we can become increasingly aware of the reality of God. It says, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will show you. So God answers prayers with his voice, and he answers prayers with a demonstration of his voice. Call to me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. So when we call out to God in prayer, God, uh, the nearness of God is, is one of the privileges we have there. Are you tracking with me? So Hebrews 11.6 says, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So another way we can live in the reality of Jesus is to diligently seek him. He rewards those who diligently seek. I don't just want to seek. If you seek, you find. But 
that's not a good enough for me because I don't just want to find what I'm seeking. I want God to um, reward me for my search. And so he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's something about our passion for Jesus. Nobody reaches the end of their life and says, I loved him too much. How many of you know there are an awful lot of folks who always say, wish I would have leaned in sooner? Right? So he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. James 4, verse 8, I think it is, God, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So there's this reciprocal response from God. When we draw near, when we bend our heart in his direction, when you're walking through the supermarket and you slow down, when you're going to work and you find your heart wandering, prone to wander, you find your heart wandering and you think, nope, not today, I am not going to live with anxiety or depression or pressure. I'm just going to pause. And we bend our heart towards him. When we draw near to God, he draws near to us. What a promise. But I'm, I'm discovering that even though when we call out to God in prayer and he answers us and he shows, when we diligently seek him, when we draw near to God, that there are times when God draws near to us. And Psalm 138 verse 6 says that God dwells or God draws near, depending upon what translation you're reading, but God draws near to those who are lowly. God will encounter you when you posture your heart and surrender. Surrender is not an act. Surrender is a place we come to. Surrender is a lifestyle. Yes, Jesus. So what happens when we surrender to Jesus? And I'm not talking about saying yes and opening the gift of salvation. I'm talking about a lifestyle of surrender. Well, what happens? Well, um, I was thinking this, um, earlier this morning, I wasn't planning on doing this, but earlier this morning I was just thinking about number six and what happens when God draws near. Number six, verse 24, it says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And cause his face to shine upon you. So that word bless in the Hebrew is, it's in the pile form. And what that means, if you want to fact check me, is when it says the Lord blesses, may the Lord bless you, um, it's, it's almost offensive to our mind. Because in our world, when you come before, you know, someone who's special in your life, when a man is proposing to the woman, he doesn't drive down the street and toss the ring at her. Right, he he gets down and and does does the one knee thing, or we attempt anyway. Usually, we're terrified and nervous, or we're just trying to figure it out. Um, but when you bow before royalty or kings and queens, you come before them. You will take a lowly posture and give them a gift. That word "bless" in the pile form literally means that the King of Kings, when the Lord blesses you, the King of Kings gets up off of his throne and he bows before those he died for and he gives you gifts. So like the gift of salvation is less about you better turn or you're going to hell and it's more about the king of kings trying to conquer you with his love and he kneels before wicked people and gives them gifts. So when we understand what God does when he draws near, now all of a sudden just living a life of obedience is really secondary because obedience is just kind of normal. And now all of a sudden surrender becomes our privilege and we surrender to the voice. We surrender to the one who bows before us. And so when he bows before us, because in Hebrew each, um, each letter is also a number, okay, And so when you look at number 6, verse 24, 25, and 26, in the Hebrew text, there are three Hebrew words in verse 24, five Hebrew words in verse 25, and seven Hebrew words in verse 26. Well, what does all that mean? I don't want to get all deep on you, but track with me. I'm going somewhere. So when the ancient Hebrews would read the Bible from right to left, what they would do is they would read it, but they would see it. Remember, numbers and letters meant something very different to them. You think, I don't understand. Well, you do this too when you send somebody a text message. Because when somebody sends you a text message, you don't just read it. You want to see it. 
So you like the emojis and the gifts and the memes, right? Hey, how are you doing? Thumbs up. You know, fat baby laughing. I mean, that's what we do. When we send a text, we want people to see what they're reading. Well, in the ancient Hebrew text, when they would read it, they would see it. And so when they would read what we call the priestly blessing, verse 24, 25, and 26, they would see the words, but they would also see numbers, and numbers meant something. So they see three, five, and seven, and the Hebrew mind would immediately add up the numbers. What's three plus five plus seven? Well, it's 15. What's 15? Yod, hey. The number one is the Hebrew letter yod, and the number five is the Hebrew letter hey, yod, hey. What's that? It's the name of God, Yah. So where we get hallelujah. Yahweh. And so when they would read number 6, 24, 25, and 26, they would see what God does when he draws near. They would see God. And so they would see God's posture. So track with me. May the Lord bless you. The King of Kings bows before you. And then it says, may he keep you. That word keep in Hebrew means wall of thorns. It's the same word used of ancient Hebrew shepherds, and what they would do is in the evening, in the open country, they took their sheep, and they took um, thorns and built a wall around them. If you go to places like Tanzania today, tribes like the Maasai tribe still do this. They build a wall of thorns around their sheep, and in the evening, you have predators like wolves and lions literally walking on the outside of the wall of thorns looking at dinner, but they won't break through the wall of thorns. So when it says, may the Lord bless you, he bows before you, may he keep you, he wraps his arms around you like a wall of thorns. Surrounded by enemies and predators, he wraps his arms around you. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. That Hebrew word shine is or. It's the same word in Genesis 1. Let there be light or instantaneous creativity. When the face of God shines on you, all of the power that was there at the very beginning, he looks in your eyes. Or, may the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you. He bows before you, wraps his arms around you, looks you in the eyes. And when it goes on to say, may the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. The Hebrew language is the same language of a dad picking up a toddler and tossing the toddler in the air. So the king of kings bows before those he dies for, makes eye contact with you, wraps his arms around you, scoops you up in his arms, and for the rest of your life, if you will live a life of surrender because he draws near to you, and when he draws near to you, he does this, he will, for the rest of your days, just take you on a journey and toss you in the air. And what what happens when you're tossed in the air? What does gravity do? It pulls your face down, and for the rest of your life, all you see is his beaming eyes. That's what happens when he draws near. So now all of a sudden, it's, so, it's no longer about, I just need to try to stay saved. I have to write my tithe check. Have to go to prayer. Better read my Bible today. And it's, God, I totally surrender to you. You're magnificent. You're majestic. I want you. I want you more than anything else, right? So when we, when we live lives of surrender and we bend our heart towards God, he draws near. But practically speaking, what does it look like to surrender to God? I think sometimes when we go all out for Jesus, we expect God to soak our life with significance, and he does. But I would propose to you that significance is found in your surrender, your, the, your significance that you were, you were formed in the image of God to experience in life, because God doesn't create junk, our life should drip with significance. I mean, when, when God anoints us with his spirit, that Hebrew word, I'm going to take a rabbit trail. I, never, I didn't use my notes in the first service, so only God knows where we're ending up today. I apologize ahead of time. So in the Bible, when it says God anoints us, that word anoint is literally, it's a word literally means to stick your whole hand and arm into a bucket of oil and smear it on somebody. So when God anoints us, he doesn't do this and do the cross because we don't want to get it, you know, because we're afraid to give somebody a zit tomorrow. It's not this. I mean, God literally like takes the turkey 
and brines the thing. That's how God anoints us. Why does God anoint us that way? Because when we're dripping with oil and we go through life, we lead a trail. And when people look at us, what's different about you? Follow the trail. And who do they find when they follow the trail, right? They find him. So I think sometimes we want God to just anoint us and douse us with significance, and he does that. But what I'm learning is that significance looks very different. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about what significance looks like when we surrender to God. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. So apologize for that rabbit trail, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. So remember, significance is found in the surrender. Verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. So who's Saul? Saul is was a Pharisee, studied under Gamaliel, one of the most infamous rabbinical teachers in Jewish history. In a few weeks, Saul will eventually become the Apostle Paul. In a few weeks, Saul will encounter Jesus. It's recorded in Acts chapter 9 on his road to Damascus. But at this point, nobody knows that. At this point, a zealot, a terrorist, is persecuting the church of Jesus. That's who Saul is. Saul was consenting to his death. Who's his? Stephen. Stephen became the first martyr uh, that we know of in the New Testament. Um, At this time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So there's this outbreak of persecution against the church. It is a time filled with uncertainty. What they expected to happen didn't happen. Their expectations don't match what they think God should be doing. They're scattered. And what used to be a tight-knit community of people, now they are finding themselves needing to go, not run and hide, but spread out a little bit. Verse 2, it says, Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Back then, men were primarily persecuted for crimes for the most part. So for him to drag away men and women shows you the volatility and the violence behind this. It's not as if he was saying, hey, you know what, you can no longer go to the synagogue. I mean, he is really, the word havoc in the New King James that I'm reading is really a great translation. He is wreaking havoc. He is terrorizing people. Verse 4, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them there. So who's Philip? So we come across Philip in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, you've got the church is beginning to expand a little bit. They've got a few thousand people um, according to Dr. Luke's narrative. And all of a sudden there's a group of women who are suffering under the unbearable weight of poverty. They were a group of Greek widows. And the entire church, the church experiences a massive reorganization and re-engineer. Have you ever wondered how God, who doesn't change, how does he successfully navigate change? He's really good at it. Well, the church in Acts chapter 6 experiences a significant change. And the strategy is, let's find people, and you can read it, who are of good reputation, who are full of the Holy Spirit, and full of wisdom. Well, Philip was one of the seven men who were handpicked to serve the poor. It says men of good reputation. That word good reputation is martyreo. That's where we get our word martyr. So the significance of that is your life, publicly and privately, and I know that's language you use here, your life publicly and privately match so much so that if I put you on trial, I can find you guilty of being a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what good reputation means. It's less about, oh, he's a good guy, she's a good lady. It's more about surrendered, filled with the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. When I was reading this in December, I just believed the Lord asked asked me, Heath, what are you full of? I want to be full of God, don't you? So here's this guy, Philip. He's a nobody, if I could use that language, because that's how we talk in the 21st century. He's a nobody. He's, he's not one of the 12 apostles, but he's just this random guy who loves God, 
who has a good reputation, who's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and all of a sudden, in a moment, God changes his entire life, and he starts working with the poor. Then persecution comes, the church is scattered, and Philip finds himself in this place called Samaria. Samaria is a place that Jewish people didn't go to. That's why when Jesus talks to the woman at the well in John 4, you're familiar with that. If you're not, you can read it. It's an amazing story. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. Samaritans had a different set of scripture. It would be like me coming up to you saying, you know what? I have a different Bible. You should read mine. You'd probably be a little cautious, right? Well, the Samaritans had a different Bible than the Jews did. So the Samaritans weren't interested in what the Jews believed and vice versa. The Samaritans had a different temple. Their temple was not in Jerusalem. So they have this very different religious system. Not only that, but the Samaritans were, if I could describe it this way, a mixed bloodline of Jewish and Assyrian descent. So the clash between Jews and Samaritans was religious but also ethnic. And we know when we look at the landscape of our world that some of the most decrepit, malevolent behavior and hatred exists where there is prejudice. So it's not that they just disagree over some beliefs. They hate one another. In the year 128 B.C., a group of zealot Jewish um, people actually destroyed the Samaritan temple and tried to force all of the Samaritans to convert. Well, that didn't work out. And so by the time Philip shows up, it's not, hey, I got an idea. It's what in the world is this guy doing here? That's Philip. So he shows up, he goes to Samaria, and he preaches Christ to them. Verse 6, and the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken of by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles he did. So they heard the gospel and they saw the gospel. The gospel was never intended just to be preached, but demonstrated. Signs and wonders should follow us. We don't follow signs and wonders. When we follow the trail of oil, we find Jesus, right? So we don't follow signs and wonders, but they should follow us. If they don't, rather than settling for an inferior, inferior um, experience with God, rather than blaming God, let's get into our closet with the Lord and ask him, what's, what's missing? Signs and wonders should follow us. Somebody once said this to me. I can't remember who it was, but somebody once said, Heath, you got to remember that the church, without the presence and power of God, takes what is real and they make it look fake. Hollywood takes what is fake and they make it look real. So let's be cautious not to be unbelieving believers. people who espouse a belief, and yet we don't have signs and wonders following us. And signs and wonders is less about angels showing up in our dining room. It's really about the fruit of the Spirit. And if an angel shows up, it's all good. But it's really about the fruit of the Spirit, right? So anyway, and healing. I mean, to be fair, so there's no misunderstanding. God still heals people. God, God does not give people cancer to teach them lessons. God is a good father, and we cannot allow what we don't understand to make us create some awkward belief system to justify our lack of encounter. At the end of the day, if signs and wonders aren't following, I'm going to come back to the Lord in prayer and in humility and in surrender and come to the word and see what God has to say. Well, Philip preaches and demonstrates the gospel in Samaria, and this is what it says. Unclean spirits, verse 7, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Right? So archaeologists have excavated ancient Samaria. One of the things they found is 10% of the skulls of children had holes in them. The ancient Samaritans practiced something called trepanning. What is that? It's literally, they would take four-year-old Billy or three-year-old Wanda, and if there were behavioral problems, they thought, our children have an evil spirit. They drilled holes into their heads so that the evil spirits could get let out and return to normal. How many of you know 
a lot of children passed away because of that. They got infected. They, I mean, it was, it was horrible. So you've got a lot of people in ancient Samaria who know, knew what it was like to lose a child. There, was, there were families that were torn apart. They, they lived under this bondage of belief that was so, it was not only inaccurate and untrue, but it placed a burden on them that they were never created by God to carry. They're losing their children because their theology is wrong. Man, I sure hope we never lose our kids. I never thought of this. I sure hope we don't lose the next generation. Because some of our beliefs are a little off. You know... The Spirit of God is a wind. It's not a box. And just when you think you've got them figured out, the wind blows. There's this, there's this space in surrendering before God where it's okay to not understand. Right? And our kids, we've got to remember the Holy Spirit is talking to our kids and our grandkids and our nieces and our nephews. And there is no junior Holy Spirit like Bill Johnson puts it. And so God is talking to your kids and your nieces and nephews and your siblings, and he doesn't feel obligated to ask your permission to do it. So he's, he's talking to everybody. So, so your, your five-year-old, your five-year-old may be in his or her bedroom painting watercolors, having an encounter with God, and you're like, what is that? Oh, this is heaven. And you look at it, and it's a dog and a squirrel. And rather than thinking squirrels don't go to heaven, just think, you know what? God's talking to my kid. I hope we don't lose our kids because of some of our... Anyway, where was I? I'm, man, I'm, I'm worse Pastor Javon today than I was first service. I'm sorry. Stick to the notes. Maybe, maybe sticking to the notes isn't the best idea, right? Where was I? Much joy in that city. So when he preaches and demonstrates the gospel, Samaritans who have lost a lot of kids, now all of a sudden, can you imagine the relief where they realize we don't have to do this anymore? People who were paralyzed walk. Have you ever been around someone who couldn't walk and God heals them? I have. The last thing they do is get up and say, man, this is cool. They don't do that. I mean, they're dancing, they're shouting, they're singing because I literally was paralyzed and now I can walk. There's much joy in that city. If you keep reading in Acts 8, what happens is this. What happens is Peter and John, some of the leaders, the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem, this, by the way, according to the... Uh, scriptures is the first time the apostles will leave Jerusalem. It's about five years after the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Five years have passed. They still haven't left. They leave because of persecution. They leave because their system has to change. Peter and John show up, and they begin to pray for the Samaritans, and the Samaritans are filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you keep reading, you'll discover something. All of a sudden, Peter and John become the leaders of the awakening in Samaria, and Philip is just kind of over here. And you don't come across any evidence that Philip is insecure or feels threatened. Ralph Waldo Emerson said it this way, there's no limit to what can be done as long as we're not concerned with who gets the credit. What I love about Philip is he's totally cool with Peter and John showing up and taking the lead. You can tell a lot about people when they lose influence. And I think sometimes we trade the altar for the stage. And sometimes we were surrendering before God, waiting for the promise, waiting for the breakthrough. And when the promise and the breakthrough comes, we forget about God because we, what we labored for and toiled for, we've got it. Sometimes, not always... Sometimes prayers are delayed because God's waiting to form something in our character because he knows once the promise is fulfilled, it will seduce us away from him. And we can, we can have a life filled with promises by God, from God, that have come true and not know him. I mean, that's all over the book, right? So we want him more than we want the, the prayer answered, right? Maybe the purpose of prayer isn't just to get the answer. So, Peter and John take the lead, and all of a sudden, in verse 26, this is what happens. Philip has a random encounter with an angel. 
Now, we know that we don't pray to angels. We know that we don't worship angels. We also know that angels are real, okay? Let's just, let's just say it the way it is. I mean, angels are real. They're all over the Bible. They are assigned to believers. They ascend and descend, and there is angelic activity. I mean, the New Testament and the Old Testament talks about this. So Philip has this encounter with an angel. It's a story for a believing believer. And the angel speaks to him in verse 26. This is what it says. Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So Philip, at the apex of the spiritual awakening, what he has worked hard for, what he has labored for, what he has built, all of a sudden Peter and John show up. Philip has this random encounter with an angel, even though it's not random, and the angel says, I want you to leave. Has God ever asked you to leave something you didn't want to leave? Has God ever asked you to give up something you didn't want to give up? There, there's some, sometimes we have to let go of a relationship. Sometimes. Sometimes we even have to let go of a job. Sometimes we have to let go of other things like, you know, some of you are enslaved because by um, the need to not struggle financially. And because you grew up and your parents didn't have much, you've made this inner vow, no matter what happens, I will not be poor. And so you stress out over money. And some of you struggle with things like 10%, writing out your tithe check, or maybe God speaks to you in the grocery store and puts it in your heart. Not audible, but he, he can do that. But maybe he just impresses on you, buy her groceries. And you're thinking, I can't do that. I've only got 80 bucks until payday. And you just struggle. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's just because if you're like me, sometimes your experiences in your past create uh, mental pathways that God wants to disrupt, right? So Philip has this conversation with an angel, and the angel speaks to him, leave it all and go on the road towards Jerusalem that leads to Gaza. Now, Gaza is 100 miles away from Samaria. He has no car. A 100-mile journey takes a while in the middle of the desert when you don't have a hydration pack, right? So the angel says, I want you to go here, and Philip doesn't argue with him. Philip doesn't say, I've given my life for this, and now Peter and John get the credit? What will you do when God give, allows somebody else to be thanked and honored for what you work for? That's why whatever you do, do it unto him. Because this world will fail you, this world will let you down, and this world will never give you the, the thanks and the praise and the accolades that you crave, so just Build an altar and turn it into worship. God, you and I know the whole story, right? And at the end of the day, any success you have, you've plagiarized it all from God anyway. Because if it wasn't for God, you wouldn't be alive. He gave you air to breathe today. So he leaves and he starts walking down this road towards Jerusalem that leads to Gaza. And it says in verse 27, he arose and he went and behold, a man of Ethiopia a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all of her treasury, who had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. So Philip leaves the awakening in Samaria. He's standing in the desert because an angel tells him to. And all of a sudden, off in the distance, there's this chariot with an Ethiopian guy in it. And remember the story, and if you don't, that's okay, but in, there's a story of the Queen of the South coming to visit King Solomon in the Old Testament. Church tradition and history would verify that this woman, uh, this Queen of the South, who traveled up and saw um, the excellence of Solomon, they eventually get, um, have a union together and they have a child. And this woman goes back to Ethiopia, the purest form of Judaism, BCE, is not found in Israel. It's found in, in Ethiopia. You can go there to this day. There's this group of Hebrews that adhere strictly to the Torah. And it's fascinating. Well, they trace their lineage and their faith back to the queen who shows up to visit Solomon. So fast forward centuries later. They're still going strong. And you've got this eunuch, which Deuteronomy 23, verse 1 says, eunuchs could not enter the house of the Lord. So you've got this eunuch who travels to Jerusalem 
on a spiritual pilgrimage. If there's ever been a good church, it was the first century church. I mean, God lit their heads on fire in Acts 2, right? So he shows up and he leaves not knowing the gospel. That tells me that at the end of the day, no matter how good the gathering is, no matter how relevant the teaching is, unless the Spirit of God finds you, you will not know God. How do we know that? It's what the Bible says. No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit of God calls him. God finds you first. And so you've got this leader from Ethiopia who leaves Jerusalem, and he's traveling back home, and he has the scroll of Isaiah. The scroll of Isaiah was expensive and hard to find. This guy's wealthy, and he reads Hebrew. He reads Hebrew. So he's reading Isaiah, and the Bible says this in Acts chapter 8. Then the Spirit, the Spirit said to Philip, go near the chariot. God speaks, God uses an angel to speak to Philip to get him to leave Samaria. And now Philip is in the desert and the Spirit speaks. In the book of Acts, it says the Spirit speaks four times. I'll give you the references in case you want to take notes or in case you want to listen to this again. The first time is in Acts 8.29. The second time is in Acts chapter 10, verse 19 through 20. Um, <laughs> I'm going to read it. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision of a sheet from heaven. God completely reorients him to what the new covenant is all about. This was a major turning point in the first century church. The Spirit spoke to Peter. The third time is in Acts chapter 13. Verses 2 through 3. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So one of Paul's missionary journeys occurs because the Spirit speaks. I want these two guys to do something. After that, they export the gospel to a place called Antioch. The church headquarters in the first century will be relocated from Jerusalem to Antioch. Simply because the Spirit spoke and because somebody listened. The fourth time the Spirit speaks is in Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 23. And this is what it says. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. This is Paul. Not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, saying that chains and tribulations await me. The Spirit of God is talking to people all over. Paul is going to be persecuted. Paul will be imprisoned. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I encounter hard seasons in life, it's good to know God is with me. The Apostle Paul is no exception. He's a normal people just like we are. And the Spirit of God was preparing him. You're going to come into a hard season, but I'm with you. Four times in the book of Acts, the Spirit speaks. What impresses me is not that Philip has this encounter with an angel. It's kind of cool, but it's surely not what I'm after. I want him. What impresses me is he dared to listen when the Spirit whispered. You know, the Spirit talks to you all day long. And if you look at the impact of the obedience of people who were surrendered to the voice of the Spirit of God in Acts, who, according to the record, speaks four times, we know he would have spoke more. Just imagine what would happen if you say yes to his voice day after day after day. He speaks all of the time. That's why scriptures say, those who have an ear, let them hear what the Spirit of God is saying. That's why the scriptures say, today, if you hear, not when you hear, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why does it say if you hear and not when you hear? Because Jesus said, they will be ever hearing, but never hearing. He quoted the prophet. He listens to the spirit when the spirit speaks, and he goes next to the chariot. And 
he asks a simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? And then the Ethiopian says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? And if you keep reading in Acts 8, Philip shares the gospel with him from the scroll of Isaiah. And the Ethiopian asks, can I be baptized? It's interesting. You can find water baptism in the book of Isaiah because you can find Jesus there. So water baptism is not just an idea. It's a command. It goes hand in hand with the gospel, right? Doesn't save us, but it's important. After the Ethiopian is baptized, the Bible says in Acts chapter 8, verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. He is transported. It's a story for a believing believer. He is picked up in the air and dropped somewhere else. I don't understand how it happened, but it did. The Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way, rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Azotus is 20 miles in the opposite direction of Gaza. So God communicates to Philip through an angel, I want you to take the road that leads to Gaza. He never ends up going to Gaza. He has a conversation with somebody on the way to Gaza. And then after that conversation, God picks him up and drops him over here at Azotus. Sometimes God points you in a direction, and it's not so that you can reach the end of the road. If God, I would propose, if God would have said to Philip, hey, you know what? I want you to go have a conversation with an Ethiopian. And according to church tradition and history, he will become the first Gentile convert to Christianity. He will export the gospel back to Ethiopia. He is the first missionary to the continent of Africa. If God would have said to Philip, hey, you're going to talk to this random guy who's an Ethiopian eunuch who's coming back from Jerusalem. Wait a second. Eunuchs aren't supposed to go to Jerusalem. Yeah, I know. But he's going to go to Jerusalem anyway, and you're going to encounter this random Ethiopian reading the scroll of Isaiah in the middle of the desert, and then I'm going to pick you up and transport you supernaturally through the air and drop you over here. Philip would have been like us. There's no way. So instead, God just says, hey, why don't you walk this way? That's the way he does it. And when he says, why don't you just walk this way? If we're not careful, we ask questions like, but there's nothing at the end of that road. That can't be God. Maybe reaching the end of the road isn't the point. Right? So he ends up at Azotus. What happens? Well, I already told you what happened to the Ethiopian. One of the first megachurches in the third century was in Ethiopia. Over 100,000 believers. Before Constantine issues his edict for the world to convert to Christianity, by the way. The last time we come across Philip, it's found in Acts chapter 21, and I'm closing with this. In Acts chapter 21, verse 7. When we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, who is we, Paul and some of his buddies. Remember, Paul was there in Acts 8. So now Saul is the apostle Paul. He's been on some missions trips, planting churches. We came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. And on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist. So... Here's this guy named Philip who has surrendered to the Lord, and nobody knows his name. He has a good reputation. His private life and his public life match up, privately devoted, publicly fruitful, right? He is, he's of good reputation. He's full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He's not full of bitterness because of what's going on in his culture. He's not being seduced by the opinions of people who are lost. He's just faithful. He's in love with Jesus, surrendered. And all of a sudden, on on a day like all other days, the Holy Spirit of God sets him apart. And he changes course and he starts serving the poor. And in the midst of being faithful and serving the poor, the church is scattered. 
Philip ends up over here in Samaria, a place he should have never been to begin with, and he preaches Jesus. And there is great joy in that city. People who were paralyzed walk again. People whose children had passed away because of the holes in the heads, now they have freedom. And at the apex of it, the angel says, go to the desert. So he goes to the desert. And there's this Ethiopian, you can see it in the distance, this chariot kicking up dust behind the wheels. Philip just standing there all alone. And he can see the cloud of dust. And the spirit speaks. Philip dares to listen when the spirit speaks. I want you to go stand by the chariot. Wait a second. I just saw revival in Samaria. Surely God won't ask me to do something simple like go stand by somebody. But he doesn't do that. Because for Philip, it's not just about obedience, is it? He's surrendered. He's already said yes. Go stand by the chariot. So he goes by the chariot. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I? After he shares the gospel and he baptizes the Ethiopian, he gets picked up and he's dropped over here to Gaza or Azotus. Never goes to Gaza. And then he disappears. Who knows what they were saying about Philip? Hey, whatever happened to Philip? Wasn't Philip the guy that God used in Samaria? This mighty man of God saw signs and wonders. Whatever happened to him? He just kind of disappeared. Yeah, he probably walked away from Jesus. He probably couldn't handle the persecution. We don't know what they said about Philip. All we know is if they were like our culture today, some people may have speculated. Whatever happened to Philip? Well, Philip ends up being a dad. And these people show up at his house, at the house of Philip the Evangelist. And how does the Spirit of God describe Philip? It doesn't say they show up at the house of Philip the Evangelist, the one who did all of the signs and wonders in Samaria. It says he was a father who had four daughters who were pure and they prophesied. The Spirit of God trusts Philip because Philip is faithful and he puts him in charge of serving the poor, people who can't do anything for him in return. And then the Spirit of God trusts him and sends him over here where he boldly preaches and demonstrates the gospel of Jesus in a place very few people would have been willing to go to. And then the Spirit of God trusts Philip to go stand in the desert and go have a conversation with an Ethiopian. And because he's faithful with the crowd, God trusts him with one Ethiopian. And because he was faithful with the Ethiopian, eventually Philip goes home. And who would have thought that the Apostle Paul, who was one of the primary reasons why Philip went to Samaria to begin with, would show up and spend the night at Philip's house? Only God can write a story like that. But you know what else? Only surrender can write a story like that too. Our surrender to God, sometimes it takes us to visible places like Samaria where we can see the fruit of our labor and we can see the impact of our surrender like Philip. When that happens, don't allow success and significance to trick you where you trade the altar for the stage. Sometimes your surrender to God does not take you to visible places. Sometimes it takes you to those inconspicuous places like the middle of the desert. Sometimes your surrender can impact an entire community in Samaria. Sometimes your surrender to God can impact an individual. Or, and this is the most important, our surrender to God impacts our home. And Philip goes home and he's a dad. I wonder what they talked about in his house. It says we stayed at his house. Dr. Luke would have been there. Can you tell us a story again about Samaria? Man, we heard all these rumors. We weren't there. Peter and John told us all about it. I'd love to tell you. Hey, can I let you in on a secret? You know, you know the person who's responsible for you going to Samaria? Here, I'd like you to meet him. Lord, thank you for the privilege of surrender. Thank you for the privilege of saying yes. Yes. 
thank you that sometimes in your mercy you trust us. And when we say yes to you and we bend our heart in your direction and surrender, sometimes we see things that are measurable and definable and our significance is visible. Thank you. Thank you that when we surrender, sometimes you summon us to the desert, a place that can be very fruitful if we'll listen. Thank you that our surrender really is where we find significance. Thank you that our surrender impacts our families, both now and our families to come. I pray that our lives will be so soaked in surrender that we find the King of Kings drawing near to us 24 hours a day as you bow before us and bless us. I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed. I want to ask two questions. The first question is this. If you're in here today or you're watching or listening, but if you're in here today and you would say, I don't know Jesus, I need to surrender to Jesus. I'm not asking if you've been baptized, if you've been confirmed. I'm not asking if you've gone through catechism classes. I'm asking, are you surrendered to Jesus? Jesus is not the Chicago Tabernacle way. He is not the American way. He's not the most relevant way. According to John 14, he is the way. He didn't come to the earth to create Christianity. He didn't come to the earth to create another religion. He came to the earth so that people who are spiritually dead, people who are separated from God, the very God who bows before you to extend the gift of salvation, he came to make a way. I'm asking, do you know him? I'm asking, are you living for him? I'm asking, are you yielded to Jesus? It's not a weakness. It's not a mistake. The Bible calls it a sin. And your sin and my sin have the same consequence. We are spiritually dead apart from Jesus. We are separated from God. There is no hope in knowing God outside of Jesus of Nazareth. But the good news, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, if, 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 two letters that the hinge of history swings on, if, we confess our sins and believe in our heart. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness and he'll forgive our sins. I'm asking, do you know him?